Uh, Frederick Beekner, who is um, quite, a, quite a famous preacher, um, he tells a story that one Christmas Eve in Vermont, um, he was with his children when they're small, and he said, you, you do the things that you do when your children are small. They packed up the stockings and um, put out cookies and some cider for, for Santa that night and, uh, and did all the things. Uh, and it's, it's cold, it's snowy, it's Vermont. And so they just prepared to tuck in for the evening and were about to go upstairs when he remembered that the neighbor down the hill had uh, let, just left to go to Florida for a few weeks. And the neighbor's sheep needed to be tended to uh, and so in the midst of a very cold evening on Christmas Eve, him and his brother put on their boots, put on everything they needed, and, and headed down the hill to take care of these sheep through the snow. They pulled the little cord of their 40-watt bulb, and all the sheep kind of came bumbling in their sleep, uh, kind of back to where these two men were. They took their base of hail and started shaking them out, and filling the room with the dust and everything else that came with it. While the snow was falling, Beekner says, you know what, being a minister, he's like, I just noticed something in that moment. He said, I noticed a manger, something that I might not have noticed at all. And it says, it seemed to me at that moment that even the whole world was this manger, this bloody mess of it all of the world where God was being born again and again and again and again and again. That you've got your mind on so many other things that you're so busy with all this that you don't see it and you don't take notice of it. But in that moment, he noticed it. And it's something um, that scientists actually even speak to, this attunement that sometimes we have. Uh, it's even sometimes called the blue car effect. Uh, and there's even a scientific name, the, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. But it's this effect. Like, if you've ever bought a car and you're like, hey, I want... Uh, my wife and I actually had this experience where I'm like, hey, I'm buying a Hyundai Sonata. She's like, what, is, what does a Sonata look like? But then suddenly she's like, there's a lot of Sonatas on the road. Um, I hadn't noticed those before. And, um, and this this effect that suddenly, like, this thing suddenly clicks in your mind. You start noticing and being attuned to this thing that, that you see all the time. You, it's, it's called also frequency illusion, which of course implies that these things are suddenly brought to attention. It's not like their frequency actually increased, but your attention to noticing those things has increased. And I think there's something to that phenomenon that's, that I think is being pointed to by Jesus in these stories that seem unrelated a little bit. Uh, so some of you that might have done discussions in your life group this week prior, you would have been like, what do these two stories actually have in common? Um, but today, I, I, I think there's, I think there's a, a package that comes together with this. And, and if there's sort of like the three points, I'm not a big three-point sermon guy, but today it, it lends itself really well that we would, we would see Jesus, we'd be filled by Jesus, and then ultimately then be invited to truly abide in Jesus. But let's look at these stories uh, individually. So see Jesus. I think the first story is very much this. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So yes, uh, as the question went, Jesus has been performing miracles and the Pharisees have seen plenty of these miracles in front of their eyes. And Jesus has just come off of sort of condemning them a bit because they're calling some of these all these movements that Jesus seems to be doing as they're saying, well, he's working with Satan while he's busy healing people and driving out demons. And so Jesus has some pretty harsh words uh, for, these, for these guys and calling them really bad trees and bad fruit in the previous story, which I think is a setup. 
perhaps, of them even asking, all right, Jesus, if you want us to not speak ill of you, give us a sign. Give us something that really proves your Messiahship. Like, rend the heavens or send a comet, whatever the sign might be that they're asking for, which we're, we're conjecturing. We don't know exactly what sign they were asking for, nor do I know what sign would have actually convinced them. But um, this, they, they were asking for this. And he answers them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonas. There's no softness of words. He refers to them as uh, sort of a, a covenant-breaking generation. That's where we get adulterous. It's, it's covenant breakers, that, that they are untrusting. They are led astray. This whole generation just seems to be off. Um, and, and I think predominantly he's referring to the Pharisees here, not as if every single person in Israel was led astray, but, but to them. And he says, uh, the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? Verse 40, for just as Jonah was, in, uh, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, how I've been taught and how I think many of us probably read this passage is we think to ourselves, well, Jesus responded to the Pharisees' request by saying, you want a sign? No. The only sign you're going to get is my resurrection. I'm going to go to the tomb for three days. That'll be the sign. That's all you're going to get. But first off, the Pharisees and scribes would have no clue exactly what Jesus is talking about at this moment. I mean, that would have been a confusing statement for them, certainly in that moment, uh, about what he's meaning. So is Jesus going to be eaten by a big fish? Is that his like, tomb? And so it would have been a bit puzzling uh, for them. Not only that, uh, but we also have a bit of a problem sometimes with, with the Greek, is that there's no punctuation. So at times we also don't know when like Matthew adds his verses and, and thoughts or when Jesus is teaching. And uh, we run into this particularly in John a lot of when Jesus is done teaching and when John's adding uh, his thoughts. And so <clears throat> it is entirely possible for Matthew also to have interjected that line to say like, look, yes, post-resurrection, we have certainly, we, can, we understand Jonah, and one of the things that happened to Jonah is that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and then came back out. And now that we have experienced the resurrection, yes, that connects to the Jonah story too. The difficulty is that the next like three lines have nothing to do with the three days in the tomb to me, um, and actually point to something else, I think, in the story. So, did Jesus say the sentence that Matthew interject? It, it, there's conjecture. Just because it's red letter, it doesn't mean the interpreters got that right. So, um, but uh, you have options. And to me, the problem is the typical interpretation misses and ignores the rest of the paragraph that Jesus actually says for the rest of the time. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment at this generation condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up at judgment at this generation condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon here. So Jesus goes on for two more analogies as part of this sign of Jonah, speaking of Jonah still, and the queen of the south, um, which <clears throat> across the board gets interpreted as a queen of Sheba, and I, I think that's, that's correct. The question is, what do these two stories have in common? What does Jonah and Sheba have, or the queen of Sheba have in common? Like, what was Jonah's task? Yeah, to who? Yeah, to, to the Ninevites, who are like, it's like the capital of their enemy country, uh, to, to Assyria. <clears throat> and what happens when Jonah goes? What does, he, what does he end up doing? Like when he finally gets there? What does he do? Yeah, he, he preaches the, a five-word, five Hebrew-word sermon of 
not even like calling them to repentance. He's like, hey, God's going to destroy this whole city. And what happens to the Ninevites? They all like repent and they all suddenly believe. And, and, and Jonah, even Jonah in the book, it's like even their animals start believing. And so <laughs> it's, it's like this crazy story. And, and it's crazy for all sorts of reasons. But, but that's, that's the story. Now, who's the Queen of Sheba? Do we know that story? Yeah, she visited Solomon. She's, she's from Africa. She's from further down, or maybe Yemen. There's, there's all sorts of different histories of exactly where she could have been located. She's definitely outside of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and so she's an outsider. She's not a Yahweh believer per se. But she shows up to Solomon, sees, is intrigued. She, she hears of the wisdom of Solomon. She hears probably, I think, of the riches and everything that's happening in Israel through their kings. And she comes and visits. And She's impressed. She even says things like, uh, praise be to Yahweh, your God, interacting with Solomon. She recognizes Yahweh and offers him praise. <clears throat> now, what Jesus says is that the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, both these groups, will rise up at the judgment. What do these two groups have in common? Yeah, they're like complete outsiders to the story and yet come and, and respond to God with either worship or repentance in the story. And I think perhaps Jesus is simply saying, you want a sign? Like, the Galileans and the Romans, like, not the Galileans, the Gentiles are believing that, like, the, the, these Romans are coming and, and being intrigued by this. These outsiders are coming to the story. Nineveh repented of the preaching of Jonah, like the Gentiles are, are doing. They're repenting of the preaching of the kingdom that's happening now. This is exactly, Pharisees, this is exactly what your scriptures tell you will happen. Sheba comes from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Gentiles are coming to hear from me. And someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than Jonah is here. It's right in front of your eyes. It's almost like, um, I joked about this with my life group, uh, but um, it, it's going to be a goofy reference. Uh, <clears throat> have you ever seen the movie Zoolander? Uh, and... Uh, at some point, um, David Duchovny is one of the characters. He's having this interaction with Derek Zoolander, and he's trying to explain why whale models will be like the usage of um, how, how he's going to bring down. And David Duchovny goes into this massive explanation of how, why male models are going to be used, how it's going to happen, how, how the bad guy, how Mugato is going to des destroy the prime minister of Malaysia. Anyway, so it's this massive explanation. And at the very end of it, Derek Zoolander looks at him and goes, yeah, but why male models? And it's like, he, David is like, serious? Like, I just explained everything to you. And I think there's a lot of this, of, of Jesus being like, how do you not see this? Like, this is all right in front of you, and you guys are totally missing it. And I think there's some application, certainly, for us, that these stories like this can give me pause. That I can be so busy looking for God to do something giant or grand or dumbfounding or something along those lines that I miss the very things he's actually doing right in front of me. Do, do I see light driving out in darkness around me? Do I, do I see that happening? Do I see lives that are being marked by repentance and, and faith in those around me? Do I see where crooked things are being made straight by the Lord around me? Or am I off looking for Jesus to do something very specific that I want him to do and feel like he's not actually doing anything around me? And that's a good question. Because let me, let me, I'm going to reiterate this again. I think it came up quite a bit in the Sermon on the Mount. I would argue what you look for, you're going to find. 
And if you're looking for this one thing for God to do, or you're looking for all the things that are wrong, or all the things that are broken, or all these kind of things, that's what you're going to find. But if we look for the kingdom bursting forth into all sorts of places, places maybe that we never expect, we may see light breaking into darkness. We may be attentive to the work that God is actually doing, sometimes in the people we least expect. And I wonder if there are signs of Jonah all over this world and we're just missing. Perhaps it's recognizing God's presence in, in a stranger, maybe in the checkout line or whatever it may be, or finding God's beauty in just the beauty of nature, such as like flowers and stuff. Like, get outside right now. Go see the colors of North Georgia and tell me that God's not doing something. <laughs> it's beautiful. Or seeing God's love and selfless actions of a friend or family member, like just go, wow, that, that's God working in them. Or hearing God's wisdom and mentor, wise counsel. Someone sits down with you and just gives you such insight and be like, wow, that, like God, that could have been God speaking. I've, I've wanted God to speak and that person just gave me wonderful advice. Like maybe God's speaking to me through them. Noticing God's guidance and circumstances and opportunities that come your way, even little things, sometimes the, the way circumstances work themselves out. Or God's creativity and art and music and the written word that just inspires and uplifts. Or perceiving God's grace and the forgiveness and reconciliation of others. Witnessing God's faithfulness and answered prayers, or sometimes even unanswered prayers. And do we reflect on the day? I think it's a good practice. It's like a good liturgy of, of your day to simply stop at the end of the day and say, where have I seen God today? Maybe do that in your home or with your roommates or with your family, whatever it may be. So that we see Jesus. And the next is to be filled by Jesus. Because then he goes into the story. When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. So remember, Jesus uh, and the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisee practice was, was a lot of, we want to eradicate the evil, right? They, they were the people that go, we do not want to end up in Babylon again. We are going to put as many rules and fences in place because we want to make sure that we stay as holy and as upright as we can possibly be. They, they, they worked really hard to eradicate everything that they would deem as evil. And then we get phrasing over waterless places. Uh, it's just symbolism. Uh, it's the desert. It's a place where nothing really lives. Um, there's nowhere for the spirit to, to settle down in because there's... There's nothing there. It's the wasteland. So what does it do? It says, I will return to my house from which I come. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And when it goes, it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last day of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this generation. And I think this beautiful image, I think, that actually Jesus is utilizing. <clears throat> so the evil spirit is removed from the house. The house is made to, it's renovated. It's extreme makeover, human addition. It's made tidy and to look in order. It's like a corporate rental apartment at that point, right? It's a showroom. It's like going to Ikea and you're being like, oh, I could live in 250 square feet. Um, <laughs> which is wonderful, except for you realize nothing lives in that space. Like, it's so not lived in. And um, so when you're there, you're like, all right. But if I actually put my clothes in there, there would be zero room uh, for, uh, for my stuff. But it's this vacant, this abandoned house. And then the squatters show back up and they destroy it, which would happen in real life. If you left a house empty, 
squatters, well, eventually it happens in our neighborhoods all the time. Those houses I sit abandoned for a long time and they start looking really, really rough, really, really fast. We were actually driving by uh, North, Cab- or, uh, North Lake Mall yesterday and even Leah's like, man, things get really run down when no one tends to it and when they seem vacant. And, and I think that's what Jesus is after here. And perhaps he's speaking wholesale, like corporately with a people, and perhaps he's speaking individually. I think there's a corporate uh, understanding here. Uh, much of the Pharisee practice is like, how much can we remove the, the wickedness so we don't end up at Babylon? So the rules, the regulations, everything was added. Guardrails, protections, to make sure evil doesn't come in. So they did what they could to drive out evil. And, and there's much sacrifice to do that. But Jesus has constantly kind of reminded them that the main goal, the main thing, is not just the sacrifice, it's, it's mercy. It's, it's to start also filling in. They're so focused on removing things that they actually struggled to fill in the very things that God also wants from them, like love and compassion and kindness and mercy. And all these things that Jesus will rail at them about. And now the Pharisees, in their actions of trying to drive out evil, have actually created probably a worse system in the process. But I think there's an individual thing, and I think this is where it gets really practical for us. Take darkness. Is darkness a, a tangible thing? No, right? Like, how do you deal with darkness? You bring light. Like, dark, darkness is simply the absence of light. Like, that's all it is. It's the absence of that. And, and we treat sin sometimes like, like darkness, which is right, but the, the analogy John uses constantly around darkness as light is to constantly bring light to things. And, and I think um, this is where something like pornography becomes uh, such a... Such a uh, a messy struggle for particularly men, but statistically also women, uh, that, that's a growing struggle for. That there's a real desire, and I think it's a right desire, to set up guardrails and protections and to use certain apps and to do all this sort of stuff. And I think that's good. There's, there's nothing wrong with those things. But so much of that can be oddly still focused on the struggle with pornography itself. It's like, you're, you're so focused on not looking at pornography that all you think about is not pornography. And so the last word you still think about all the time is still pornography. It's just a thing. But instead of just trying to fight the darkness, what does it look like to also bring in light? To start replacing the things that get us into the bad habits with, with the good and the right and the true what if the house of our soul needs to be filled with the things of God instead of just eradicating all the wrong? His presence, his spirit, his goodness, his faithfulness, his word on our mind and on our lips. You want to know how to fight some of the things, and this is not just pornography, but the things that sometimes just struggle. We, they're nagging sins for us, and perhaps, perhaps the fight is really about how we fill ourselves, not about how we just stop doing with the good things of God instead. And I think this might be what Jesus is after as well. How do we not live in the abandoned house? Sure, yes. Believing in Jesus. Yes. I affirm that completely, right? By believing in what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection. Believing that he is the victor over sin uh, and death, and he offers forgiveness of my sins and invites me into a new life with him. Absolutely. I believe that when I believe, when I repent and believe in that, that Jesus puts his spirit in me. I'm affirming that completely. That is how you, you move from uh, the devil house to a spirit-filled house. Yes. But Jesus also says a few interesting things in addition to that. 
He'll say things like in John 15, he says, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Or he says things like to the church in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And so we see Jesus also take this whole idea of abiding with us and, and also go, you should abide with me too. Like, there's, 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 a, there's a mutuality to this dwelling that, that Jesus invites us into. Yes, his spirit fills us. That, that comes by repentance and belief. And if you're a believer in this room, his spirit's in you now. But there's also the invitation of Jesus by going, but, but I want you to abide back. I want, I want you to do these sort of things. And I think that's where we get that we see Jesus, we're filled by Jesus, and then we move to what does it look like then to fill the house as well, to, to make it ready for, for Jesus' spirit, even though it's already there, but to, to set the table for it. Let's talk about physical health. I think this is a helpful analogy. What do we need to maintain a healthy body? At least to a nutritionist. You ever put on your nutritionist hat in the room and answer the question, what do we need to maintain a healthy body? Yeah, water. Man, I hate that one. Um, my, I, I know, I do. My wife's like, that's not good enough. You need to drink water. Um, yeah, and I'm like, the first ingredient in all my sodas is water. Um, so, um, yeah. Balanced diet, yeah, good healthy diet. Eat the right things. Vegetables, yeah. Exercise, yeah, good, good. These are all wonderful things. They're, they're all really important things. Many of us know all these things, right? No one in the room is like, oh, I hadn't heard that one before, right? <laughs> we, we all know these things, right? But many of us struggle with them. Why? That's true. <laughs> the Christian chicken is good. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but, but many of us like, need help with all these things. We need community around us sometimes of encouragement and, and accountability in those things. We need tools sometimes of going like, I don't know what workouts to do. I need a tool to help me know what workouts to do. And, and trying to decipher what it actually is healthy food sometimes is hard because everything gets marketed certain ways. And it seems like, well, that sounds healthy, but it ends up not being that healthy. And all these sort of things that we end up having and, and habits and learning good rhythms and having people around to help us develop those good rhythms. Or life. And, and I, think, I think there's a lot to that, that that the spiritual life has analogies to. It's like Jesus is our, like our spirit nutritionist. <laughs> and he invites us not just to like cut out donuts from our spiritual diet, but, but to fill ourselves with the good, the, the life-giving, the eternal. And I think he invites us to reframe our lives, our habits, our practices around him, and, and to practice the way of Jesus, to, to do those things in our lives, and, and the promise that this is, this is good, this is right, this is fulfilling to you. Dallas Willard talks about this a ton. He says this, the first and most basic thing we can and must do to keep God before our minds, uh, is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret for caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing uh, the, the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habit of dwelling on things less than God. 
which if you ever started working out, I mean, January 1st is coming. It's going to be the time where a bunch of us like go try to start working out again and it's burdensome and it's hard and it's difficult at first, right? <clears throat> but these habits, not the law of gravity, can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. And I think Dallas's point is that like, when we start living in this constant state of awareness, connection to the Spirit, all day, like, it, takes, it does take practice. And that doesn't come naturally for a lot of us. And this is where like, the church's return, I think, to the spiritual disciplines is so healthy for us. We can call them the practices of Jesus, the way of Jesus. There's all sorts of different words. Sometimes discipline carries with it a certain weight. But silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, scripture, Sabbath, all these things, the list can go on and on, every single one. And they can get a bad rap for being legalistic, and that's people who sometimes don't have a clue what they're really about, what they're really for, because they are not the end. Every single one of them is a means to the end. And so if you're a type A in the room and you start going, here's, here's a list of disciplines, um, you got to get through every morning and you're like, check, 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 check. That's, that's not what they're there for, right? It's not like I read my Bible, check, boom, move on. That's, that's not what Jesus is inviting us into. The spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, to be filled with Jesus, to be filled with the Spirit to orient our life into abiding in that vine. And there are way through day to day, through week to week, to, to, to live a life, to present yourself before God, saying, God, you, you've, you're here all the time in this place, and I'm the one who hasn't been here, present with you. I've been online, I've been on my phone, checking things, whatever it may be. I've not been with you, I've been somewhere else. But now I'm here. And God, you're here. I know you're here. I'm here. We're together. We're here together. And hear me, Jesus, like this is the best part. The best part about following Jesus is we get Jesus out of us. So what does this look like? I think it's, yes, put on the filter on your computer, whatever it may be. But let's also be sure to add something. Like, if you're alone, put on some worship music. Like, that may be the thing that, like, is also triggering in the back of your mind as opposed to some of the other thoughts where you can go to when you're alone. Or instead of the frantic pace that's just causing anxiety and stress, all this kind of stuff and chaos in your life. But hear me, that's, that's not God's desire for you. That's not flourishing. Perhaps we slow down. Perhaps we take Sabbath rest very seriously and go, hey, this Saturday or this Sunday, I'm, I'm not, uh, my email's off, I'm disconnected, I'm present with my friends or with my family. You're like, Chris, but the devil doesn't take a day off. Yeah. <laughs> cool. You're implying that what we should do is copy the devil's way of living <laughs> by saying that, as opposed to actually going, God, I know you're also spiritually in the battle all the time, and you're inviting me to take a rest, because I know you fight the battles. Instead of doom scrolling, perhaps just time and word and prayer, or the nonstop noise of our phones, or work, whatever, and we seek solitude instead. Time with God dedicated to his presence. Now hear me. 
I'm a parent of young kids too. Silence and solitude is like the most foreign thing in my world. Um, but, but to carve out even, even five minutes, whatever it may be, it's taking a moment, not just working against all the things that you know are not helping you flourish, but also looking to fill your soul with the things that bring life and food and nourishment to us. Like Paul tells this church, be filled with the Spirit. And, and I think um, one of the analogies I, sometimes I go to with that is like a rain barrel. Now, if you had a rain barrel, what do you need to do for the rain barrel to function correctly? Yeah, it needs to be outside, probably, right? It's a good start, yeah. It probably needs some hole in its top, right? Otherwise, it's never going to collect any rain. And then maybe like, hey, we're going to put some gutters over it. We'll put some whatever it is. We'll put a downspout that, that fills it up. Now, hear me. We, we don't get to just wield the Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, I don't think we're at the, I don't think theology, as I read it in, in Scripture, is we get to just command how the Spirit moves and acts and all this kind of stuff. But we sure can set the parameters right for when it does come. And when God wants to pour out his spirit and when God wants to send the rain of what it looks like to be ready, to be filled. And I think the disciplines give us that practice to, to set up the gutters in our hearts and our minds, to set up, to open the top, to get the barrel outside. Like, you're not gonna get any water if you're stuck inside. And I think Jesus invites us through these things to, so that he can fill us. And the more we're being filled, the more we're tuning our lives to the Spirit, I will also say it gets easier um, to, to do the practices. Like, it's like exercising. That first month or two, hard work. Getting that body sort of back into the rhythm of it. But after that, it develops a, a, a bit of a, a, an understanding of what it's going through and responds differently. There's, there's, it's still work at times, but, but it's simpler, and it's, it's easier. The habit's there. So, conclusion, so will we see Jesus? As I said, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees around their awareness, incredible miracles and signs of what God is doing already in the world in front of them. And he's doing incredible things, particularly to people that no one expected, in, in a time no one expected, in ways that no one expected, and they were missing him. And I, I want to make sure that we're not missing him too. Are we spending our lives just not aware of it? Are we spending our lives so focused on driving out everything wicked and good that, that we don't even see God when we're face to face with it? And we'll be filled by Jesus. As I said, the Pharisees expected <clears throat> that eradicating some of the sin practices would be the solution, but they never replaced it with goodness and mercy and the things of God. They never really had the heart renovation either. That would be a constant theme for them. But by faith in Jesus, we're filled already with the presence of the Spirit, and then we're invited into abiding back, abiding back into Jesus. There's some mutuality to this, where he sets up shop but invites us to dwell in him also. It's like, um, I always find the making of the tabernacle interesting, because there's so many connections to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes all the space, right? He makes all the space, he puts Adam and Eve in it, and what's his instruction to them? Like, fill it. Hey, I need you guys to fill the space that I just made for you. And, and does, were they successful? No, right? Adam and Eve, failures. So, <laughs> but we get the tabernacle, right? And then God's like, hey, I want you to build, build me a space. And it's going to have all these little connections to creation. It's wonderful. 
But I want you to build this space. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to build it, and I'm going to fill it. And I think there's something about even the disciplines of life that are a lot like that, of, Jesus, of God saying, hey, build this space. Build the space for me in your life. Build the space for me in your rhythms. I want to fill it. And I think that's what Jesus is inviting us into in that whole story of the demons, is how, how we fill our lives and what we fill it with. Will we fill it with the things that counterform us or to fill us with the things that the world wants to form us in? Or will it fill it with the things that will counterform us into the image of Jesus, whose kingdom is not like the rest of the world's?